Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Gerald Daw. Jerry is Fellow Emeritus and Professor of English at Trinity College Dublin, and is the author of many volumes of poetry, as well as the author and editor of numerous influential books of essays of literary and cultural criticism. We're talking to Jerry today about his new book of essays, The Sound of the Shuttle, Essays on Cultural Belonging and Protestantism in Northern Ireland, just been published by Irish Academic Press earlier this year, 2020. Jerry, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be on. <laughs> it's not really an honour. I cued you. Um, Jerry, before we talk about your work, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in Belfast in uh, 1952, um, just after the... Uh, really after the Second World War. Um, I grew up uh, surrounded by um, some of the remains uh, of uh, the Blitz, 1941, um, referred to as the Brickies. I grew up in North Belfast and an interesting kind of mix of uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish and other other, uh, ethnicities um, in the 50s and early 60s. Um, The world that I sort of... uh, grew up in without really, you know, thinking uh, about it as you would as a young fella. Um, it, it was a kind of interesting, almost sort of multicultural world. Uh, we didn't use that. We didn't use that language then, but it, it was. I mean, I was very tuned as a young fella going to church. Um, uh, I was aware of uh, the different kinds of uh, groupings inside the Protestant church. Um, and that kind of stuck with me, you know, the, the range of uh, Protestant expression. As two doors down from us, there was a very close family to ours. Very, uh, we were very connected to them, a, a Catholic family from the Glens of Antrim. Um, and uh, I was sort of conscious without really thinking about it, that um, the Catholic Church was one huge monolithic kind of presence. <coughs> Excuse me. Um and that sort of stayed with me. Then, as I grew, as I, I, I uh, as I grew up, uh, I became very pally with a couple of uh, uh, members of the Jewish community, which was literally uh, up the road. The thing about North Belfast, well, the area I'm talking about, Glandor, Skegeneal, that that area, uh, was that it, it wasn't as if there were kind of enclaves of, or, you know, this was a Catholic area, this was a Protestant, this was this. Uh, it was all mixed up. So the, your neighbours could be of any faith or none. Um, And that kind of, I think, looking back now, I think that sort of sensitized me to uh, religion in a way which um, maybe if I'd been brought up in London, which I could well have been, because the family, half the family emigrated there uh, um, way back in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, uh, I probably wouldn't have been so tuned up. And then, of course, as we know, um, I went to... uh, uh, the, the troubles broke in 1968, but 
uh, a few years before that, uh, I, I I moved from the primary school I was at uh, across side across Belfast uh, from north to east Belfast, and I attended a, a wonderful school called Orangefield. Um, and then out of that, uh, developed very close and dear friendships, uh, and I started to really take seriously the notion of uh, being a writer or trying to be a poet. Um, and uh, I, I, I sort of think back to those late 50s, early 60s years as um, not just my formation as a poet, but my formation intellectually is how I started to think about uh, what ultimately happened and how I tried to, uh, well, in a way, cope with the reality of how uh, post-1968-69 this sort of little idyll or moment of multiculturalism, which I had experienced um, uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, that that had been completely shattered. Um, and uh, when I when I finally left Belfast in the early 70s and moved to the west of Ireland, um, I had a kind of a, almost a, a, a challenge uh, intellectually and, and indeed emotionally to try and relate these two sides of Belfast, which I had experienced, the sort of relaxed environment of uh, the North Belfast that I inhabited in the 50s and early 60s, the relaxed atmosphere of Belfast inner city, um, the life that we lived there and going to dances and and uh, clubs and uh, and hanging out in the city centre, where the, our little group uh, I often refer to them as a little company of friends. Uh, I mean, they came from all walks of life and it would have been anathema to us to actually, um, you know, think or box people into whether we were Protestant or Catholic. We were more interested in other issues, um, you know, global issues in a way, if we even uh, spoke about those. I mean, Vietnam was a big thing in Belfast. A lot of people were talking about it. Um, uh, and I, I suppose if we were children of the 60s, too. So, I mean, our minds and our, our sort of our moral lives, our, our, our emotional lives were plugged in very much to what was happening in the rest of the world. Um, and when the troubles came around, it sort of stunned or shocked a lot of people at, by which stage. And, and certainly my own pals, a lot of them had left, had moved uh, to Scotland or to London or to Canada. Um, or, for, or further afield, and the sort of little cohort of uh, our group broke up, and um, uh, indeed I had left too. But I always retained the connection back with Belfast. My mother was there, my sister was there, uh, there was a couple of old pals still there. So, I mean, it wasn't as if I had sort of turned my back on where I'd come from. It's just that, you know, life took me in another direction. But this book that we're going to talk about really comes out of a... Re uh, a reflection on the the, the period of time uh, from really the mid eighties to the present, where I've over several several years have uh, written and tried to think about that background that I came from, um, but also to see it in its wider context. Now you moved from Belfast to Galway to to to, to begin a teaching career there and a writing to build your writing career there. But you explain in the book that you were continually thinking about where you came from and what that meant, especially as violence erupted, as 
competing narratives began to be evolved that described the situation and the participants in it in very different ways. And you speak, I think, very movingly in the book about the way in which you accepted a version of what might have been happening and then you continually rethought that and rethought that and perhaps tried to see through some of the stereotypes that were being offered um, to, to, to a wider audience that sought some understanding of of conflict. So all of that lies behind this really magnificent set of essays in The Sound of the Shuttle. Jerry, what, what does the title The Sound of the Shuttle allude to? Well, it it, um, it comes from an, uh, a letter that John Keats, the great London poet, uh, wrote, um, where he, he had attended, he, he had taken a, a walking tour through Ireland in 1818. I think my date's right there. And um, I, way back, back, oh, back in the 70s, I think, I was researching uh, a, a thesis on William Carlton and uh, the kind of social uh, social conditions of Ireland in the uh, uh, just pre the famine 1847 and post the famine, and I I was curious to see how others had Carlyle was one and various other non-Irish writers had sort of uh, picked up on the social conditions of the country. Um, uh, in the early part of the 19th and middle part of the 19th century. And I came across this letter that uh, uh, Keats had written. I think it was to his brother, but I might be wrong. Um, and he talks about uh, uh, entering into Belfast. I think he'd, he probably came off a ferry or um, he, I think he'd definitely come off a ferry. And he was on, uh, uh, it was a walking tour, but uh, he ended up anyway in Belfast. And uh, he talks about uh, the uh, the sounds of the city. Um, and one of the things he mentions is the sound of the shuttle, which, of course, is the sound of the linen mills. And uh, I, it really caught my imagination. Um, you know, you can also play around with the notion of the shuttle today, you know, space shuttles or a shuttle service or so on. But he was meaning the actual shuttle itself, the uh, the uh, the, the functioning thing and the sound that that would, was obviously making as he was walking uh, through the city. It also connected to, which is one of the themes of the book, and it's something that I've been sort of thinking about and writing about as well for many a year. Uh, it, it has always troubled me the fact that those who create uh, uh, the wealth of a society are often the least people uh, the last person that actually receives any award or remuneration or acknowledgement. And it struck me, I do remember, I, I, as I said, I was born in the 50s, so I kind of grew up towards the end of the great industrial uh, history of, of, of Northern Ireland, Belfast in particular. Uh, but I can still remember the sound of the sirens uh, as people were moved into work. Uh, I can still remember a functioning shipyard uh, Gallagher's was still a very, uh, it was still physically there in York Road uh, uh, on, the, on the shorefront uh, in uh, North Belfast. There were still huge manufacturing uh, industries at East Belfast, uh, uh, Bryson's and all these different ones. Um, so this notion that, in fact, Belfast uh, was such an industrial place with all its smells, its sounds, um, and yet... Um, there's very little acknowledgement in the history or in the culture of the hundreds of thousands. Uh, I suppose if you add it up, it could well be millions, or maybe that might be stretching it too far. 
but certainly the hundreds of thousands of ordinary women and men who worked in the mills, worked in the shipyard, worked in uh, some appalling conditions, uh, the flax making, um, all those manufacturing country uh, uh, companies, um, primarily in Belfast, but also scattered along the eastern seaboards and then into other cities like um, uh, around the north. Um, that I just wanted to make one simple point, which was, what about their history? I mean, we seem to be obsessed with political history in Northern Ireland. Who did what? Why? What was their ideals? What did they want to do? What? Where did? What is it going to be United Ireland? Is it going to be a union? Is it this? But I, I, I sort of felt like I wanted to just, for my own peace of mind, I wanted to say something about ordinary people, and of course. As we know, when we do the numbers, it was ordinary people who bore the brunt of the abominable troubles uh, for three decades. Um, and again, on that level, they seem to have been taken out of the story. It's a story about uh, volunteers. It's a story about the IRA, the UVF, the paramilitaries. Important and all of that is uh, for political uh, history. I wanted just to say, what about over here? What about these ordinary people who sustained this society. Many of them who couldn't get jobs had to leave. Partly my own family had to do that. The sense of migration and immigration is there. So I just wanted to kind of put on the table without uh, uh, getting polemically involved in it. I just wanted to say, hey, wait a minute. Back in 1818, Keats could walk through the city, could hear, uh, and he wasn't at all impressed, by the way. He could hear the sound of the shuttle. And maybe we should start listening to the signs of that history as well. Hmm. Well, I think one of the most impressive essays uh, in this collection is Anecdotes Over a Jar um, from, I think, the early 1990s. And in, in that essay, Anecdotes Over a Jar, you're thinking about issues of identity and you're considering the question of what it is that makes a poet Irish. Would you consider yourself to be an Irish poet? Absolutely. I mean, I was born in the island of Ireland and the language that I speak is very much an English uh, influenced by uh, the vernacular uh, of uh, North Belfast, uh, of my time living 20 years in the west of Ireland, my time uh, living here in, in Dublin and teaching at Trinity. So, I mean, uh, I can't walk away from reality. Um, I grew up, uh, my grandmother was a teacher of elocution or voice production, as it was once known. And I remember very clearly as a young fella uh, listening upstairs as the Belfast girls and boys went into the front room, the good room. And uh, she taught piano as well. So some of them were learning how to uh, play the piano. But elocution was very important because when they walked in, they had a Belfast accent, but their parents wanted them to walk back out with a received pronunciation, a kind of non-local accent which would facilitate them and their developments uh, in career-wise. Um, that was back in the 50s, and Ethel, my grandmother, did a very good job. I mean, you could hear how they could take on this other language uh, uh, to, to better themselves, in quote. So it was partly overhearing that that I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, I mean, I don't really want to go down that road. I mean, she tried to get me to speak properly, but I, I, I never did. Um, uh, but the issues of identity, I think, can be overplayed. I mean, I wrote, I think in that essay, or maybe it's one of the other ones, that I grew up in a British educational environment. Uh, I was lucky in that the school I went to and the university I went to, there were other 
counterflows, which took account of uh, the culture of the island that I was living on. Um, so I, I always felt that I was getting the best of both worlds, not that I had to make a decision of which was better. Um, so, I mean, I absolutely adored, uh, well, as you can gather, people like uh, writers like Keats and the great romantics of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and, and it made it, and it made reading Yeats so much easier when you saw where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never felt that it was a question of either or. It's a question of both. But that has to that that actually came up against a, a cultural reality too. When I started to make a sort of uh, some class of a reputation for myself as a poet and as a writer, I would be out and about, and sometimes you'd be invited on the continent, the continent to Europe, uh, give readings and sometimes give talks and so on. Uh, and I remember very distinctly, it was in the early 80s, uh, I was been doing an interview with a, a, a Dutch radio station. And uh, the guy was talking to me uh, about Ireland and uh, the hunger strikes and various things that were very dominant in the media at that time. And I, I, I did turn around and say to him, I mean, these are these are crucial, important issues, but I said, I said, I mean, there are other stories as well. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, the history of the Protestant. And he just sort of glazed over. Uh, and I, I felt as if I was actually talking to the wall at that point. Um, so it stuck with me. Um, uh, and I mean, this, again, is not a question of either or. You either talk about one thing or the other. It's a question of talking about both. But it did start me on the line of saying that what, what is this invisibility of Protestant culture? And um, uh, through John Hewitt in the summer school, I started to experience more exposure to this kind of discussion and debate. And uh, it was kind of reflecting back upon how I was experiencing things as a as a relatively young uh, uh, poet and writer um, going going out and about and giving readings. Um, People not from. For not with any sense of malevolence, but they assumed that if you were Irish, you were Catholic. And if you're an Irish Catholic writer, there were certain things that you would write about. Now, that is all gone. It's completely gone. But those stereotypes, um, as I said uh, in another interview last week, those stereotypes can actually end up like the man with the iron mask, locking people into perceptions of our stereotypes of who they are and what they are and performing accordingly. So at that stage, I remember somebody saying slightly tongue in cheek, but maybe there was a little bit of a sting in it. Surely it's a contradiction in terms Protestant and imagination. And I said, well, not really. If you go back in time, uh, Swift, Beckett, Yeats, uh, Singh, uh, Elizabeth Bowen, uh, Jennifer Johnson, uh, and then my slightly older generation of like, uh, to mine, Derek Mahan, Michael Longley. It wasn't a question of putting our team on the pitch. It was just saying, you know, uh, there is this other side of life too. And it has been expressed, but that widened out then. I started to get cross when people uh, said that the only thing that was Protestant, uh, the only Protestant culture was basically the Orange Order. Which is fair enough. The Orange Order has its own reality, its own history, its own social functions and, and, and raison d'etre. But that is not the only element. There's all the choir music. There's the hymn, the, 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 the religious music. Uh, there's uh, the marching band. Yes, but there's also Jimmy Galway. There's um, 
There's uh, Trimble, the wonderful uh, composer from uh, Inniskillen. Uh, and then there's a whole range of engineers, entrepreneurs, uh, medics, um, uh, I mean, farm equipment, uh, literally uh, uh, Ferguson's and, 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 and so on and so on. It almost was as if Protestant culture was completely and absolutely occluded. And that fed into, and perhaps still does, a slightly um, arrogant dismissal of uh, the fact that certainly in the way I brought it was brought up, there was an almost kind of moral assumption that you did not put your put yourself forward. Uh, I think this may be probably a, a generational thing. It's now possibly gone, but uh, I can hear that kind of proverbial sense of, um, uh, you know, you, you should not, you're sort of instructed to be modest, humble. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm relaxed about all that because I feel that, that, that is, you know, praise has to come to you. You cannot summon praise. Um, <clears throat> and that, that sense of grace, of being in grace is a very powerful point of my upbringing. Um, it was never stated so, but, um, you know, praise, uh, was something that you, uh, you should not look for. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, achievement, ambition are good in their own right, but they're not something that you should uh, overstate. And I think that kind of, uh, shall we call it, old-fashioned uh, belief uh, was completely and absolutely uh, out of zinc with uh, the times that we are now living in. And uh, um, I mean, I, I think the, well, the other thing that connects in with the book is that, of course, the imperial attachment of Protestantism in Northern Ireland, the fact that so many Northern Protestants see themselves as being British and that that, that Britain is now, uh, well, it's being redefined, it's being reimagined. Um, I, I wanted to kind of touch upon that. So the last three essays in the book uh, um, are, are from the 21st century and they, they kind of are an attempt to to say, where are we from 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement going into post-Brexit England or Britain? And how does that connect in with uh, Northern Protestantism and its sense of self? Um, and uh, I mean, it's a short book and I hope it's not a, uh, I, I hope it reads in a kind of slightly pacey way too. Um, these are, to me, these as essays are like uh, uh, darts. They're like uh, uh Shots in the dark. Uh, they're like trying to get people to think about things without being stereotypical. I mean, as I said the other day, being born in Northern Ireland, you're not given a pill which says this, you're going to be a Catholic, you're going to be a Protestant, you're going to be, you know, a Presbyterian, you're going to be a Methodist, you're going to, I mean, uh, I, I'm opposed to the notion that there is some kind of essential nature called I am a Protestant, therefore I act in certain ways. But I think it would be foolhardy and uh, un unwise and uh, really doesn't help um, if people weren't to recognize that if you're schooled in a certain way, you're going to have certain kinds of ideals and beliefs. Um, if you if, as seems to be increasingly the case, 
Protestants are not knowing Catholics now through second or third level um, uh, and Catholics not knowing Protestants. That's a problem we're going to have to get get get, get in touch with. Um, but uh, I mean, every writer has to find his or her own level. And one of the things that has happened over the last five or 10 years, which is, of course, a cause of great celebration, is that the area that I used to school, go to school in East Belfast, has produced a generation of young uh, uh, women writers uh, whose energy and whose focus and whose uh, lyricism uh, is in itself uh, a great value and re reorganizes and redefines the terms of this book. So if I was uh, Gerald Daw as a 31 year old man today in 2020, I would be writing about those women. Mm, fascinating. Can I, can, I, can I just push you a little bit further in this question of identity, though? We've been talking about national cultural identities, those kinds of mass belonging. But what about religion? You've written about religion all the way through your writing career from the very beginning. And obviously it's a core theme uh, of this collection of essays, The Sound of the Shuttle. Um, even in The Last Peacock, which is your most recent collection of poetry, you have a fascinating juxtaposition of one poem called Sects, 1984, with another poem called Tongues of Fire, two very different kinds of statements about Faith, religion, its place in the public square, perhaps. Also, I think maybe gesturing to different time periods in the way in which you might have thought about religion. But as you think about those poems, let's say Sex, 1984, Tongues of Fire, and the material you've brought together in The Sound of the Shuttle, would you consider yourself to be a religious poet? Hmm. Uh, I, I, I think I've had uh, uh, an ongoing preoccupation with the influence and the impact of religion. Um, the family historically are Huguenot that arrived in Ireland uh, from persecution in France. Uh, they worked their way up through uh, the through Ireland, ending up in Marafelt and then ultimately in Belfast, um, where my great-great-grandfather met a woman who uh, we, we don't quite know where she was from, but her name was Quartz. Uh, and they settled in Belfast and prospered. And, 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 and that, that was where my family originates from. So I think when those stories were handed on to me by my mother, um, it, it sort of sensitized me as a very young man, like I'm, as a teenager, to the role of religion and how it uh, impacts upon people's personal stories. But as you say, I mean, uh, Belfast features in uh, this latest book of poems, uh, The Last Peacock, in a way which I found unexpectedly. Um, the poem that you're, you mentioned, Sex 1984, is actually about the kind of uh, truth-telling uh, and witness testimony that used to take place in uh, the city of, uh, centre of Belfast. And it was taking place surrounded by all these other groups of individual uh, punks and mods and so on. It's a wonderfully, uh, wonderfully rich kind of moment, which I spotted and which the poem comes out of. But of course, Corn Market was also the place where Henry John McCracken had his um, uh, Morning Star, his newspaper. 
um, and that's where he ultimately met his fate. Um, so, I mean, history is never too far away in Belfast, never too far away from anywhere in, 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 on the island of Ireland, to be frank. Uh, Tongues of Fire, uh, which comes from the Pentecostal uh, moment, uh, um, I'm a huge fan of Stuart Parker, and I, ad- I adore his play Pentecost. I think it's one of the great, dare I say, classic Irish plays. Um, and it, it, towards the end of that play, there's a moment when they, they recite uh, the, the moment of, the pe- of Pentecost. Um, and that that moment really sent a shiver down my back when I uh, saw it the first time round in the 1980s uh, in, in Derry, I think it was. Um, and I was trying to remember where that had come up before the Pentecost, speaking of tongues, speaking in tongues and so on. And uh, I remember it was in school, actually, in Orangefield, where uh, we, we for some religious education, uh, it came up about the notion of speaking um, the truth um, and how that is so important uh, to be inspired uh, to speak the truth and no matter what. And of course, um, in our contemporary world, uh, this is, alas, uh, connected in with um, the martyrdom the language of uh, uh, jihad and, and so on. So I, I, I was trying to, in, in some way, counterpose different kinds of uh, religious sensibility and sensitivities and how, on one hand, they can produce a multicultural moment in Belfast in 1984, bizarrely, in the height of the Troubles, or on the other, this uh, individual terrorism uh, attacking um, uh, people in a hotel uh, hurting young women uh, into borders, uh, into camps, um, and wondering aloud in the second poem, uh, Tongues of Fire, where, where, how, did, how does it get so badly distorted and perverted that something which is emotionally and morally can become so bloody and terrifying? And one of your essays, uh, you quote from Terence Brown, describing the condition of Northern Protestantism as a condition of essential homelessness, dependency, anxiety, obdurate fantasizing, sacrifices in the name of liberty, villainous political opportunism, moments of idyllic, idealistic aspiration. And elsewhere in the book, you, you set out your concern that Protestant Unionist culture has no image of itself and consequently accepts those stereotypes that have been created for political purposes. Now, I suppose, almost 40 years on from when that essay might have been written in 1985, if I've got my maths right, do you see that things have changed? Do you think that the stereotypes have been broken through? Is Protestant culture or unionist culture, does it have a clearer sense of what it has been, what it might be, or are we still locked in this condition of facelessness? I think facelessness is a very good way of putting it, but I I I, I think things have advanced. Uh, I think uh, things are on the up, um, and it it it's very much down to uh, the creativity and the uh, the bounty of those uh, younger women writers, but also younger men as well, uh, who are producing work of of first rate quality. 
Um, but my sense is that um, there's a generation which would be the generation younger than me. I'm now 68, so I'm talking about a generation 30 years younger uh, in their uh, 30s. And they seem to me to have become completely and absolutely detached from the sort of structures that we're talking about. They live their lives inside their own generation. I'm talking about young married couples with a couple of kids. Uh, I see them in South Belfast all the time. Um, they're into uh, big issues of ecology, green movement, uh, health, uh, uh, mental well-being. Um, they they share almost a kind of um, the sort of idealism that I had uh, in the 60s. Um, and I, I don't think they attach religion to their to their identity, although they may well go to church, uh, uh, either to mass or to service, uh, uh, or they may they, they may not. Um, so I think in a way, the stigma of uh, being uh, a Protestant in Northern Ireland is fantasy. Um, but I do think that inside certain uh, Protestant communities, there is a sense in which they are trapped. And um, I suspect this probably is in, the, in, in other communities in post-industrial Britain, uh, where the lives that they and their parents and grandparents had known, uh, uh, growing up, working in uh, particular factories, uh, receiving self-respect and status and prestige from the job that you had, uh, involved in city and guilds, all the cultural and intellectual and indeed artistic uh, uh, elements that were associated with that job and the lifestyle, uh, that's all gone because the industries have gone. So the, the, uh, these groups of, of men and women families, uh, they are marooned. And uh, as we know, when that happens, uh, you either uh, try and create new positions, new jobs, new environment, or as is happening uh, throughout Britain and, and, and Ireland, uh, others move in and produce other solutions, which of course are not the drugs, crime and so on. Uh, I think that looking at it from a strictly political point of view, I think loyalism uh, was a great sustaining element inside those post-industrial uh, uh, groups. But loyalism itself is now, in a way, uh, it's lost its voice. And, um, you know, David Irvine was a man I respected a lot. Uh, I think he and others in the PUP provided that. That doesn't seem to be there anymore, not certainly in the kind of visibility it is. But I'm... I'm I'm, I'm not de I'm not depressed or downhearted about the future. I think that uh, there's a very strong uh, democratic spirit abroad in Northern Ireland. Uh, what it needs now is to be re-energized, refocused, uh, and 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 maybe to take on, if you like, a new generation Good Friday, Friday Agreement, and to take that into the uh, next decades decades ahead. But the core to all this and it doesn't need any it doesn't need a genius to work this out the core to all this you can't allow you can't have ordinary uh, people uh, not having access to education not having 
the right to express themselves as they wish, uh, provided they're not doing any harm to any others. That's a golden rule. And um, I, I mean, identity is becomes fractured and fragmented and problematical and dangerous once people feel that theirs is being taken away from them. Um, so it's a balancing act. But I think we have the intellectual resources in Northern Ireland to answer that. Well, Jerry, we've taken a lot, lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what we might look forward to reading from you next? Oh, well, I have, uh, uh, I did a, a, a book called uh, In Another World, Van Morrison and Belfast, which was published uh, three years ago. And I'm going to do, a, I'm, I have a follow-up on that, uh, which is uh, called Looking Through You, Northern Chronicles, which is a kind of prequel uh, to, to, to that book. And it's much more personal. It's about uh, the kind of influences uh, that I was drawn to uh, in Belfast in the 60s and 70s and the people I was reading and so on, a kind of formation book. Um, and then if all if all is good, um, and my plan is next year, um, I'm going to bring together all the various bits and pieces I've written about Irish writing, not big heavy essays, but um, reflections into a book called Moon's Corner Selected Prose. And that'll, that, 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 I'm looking forward to putting that together in the, the year ahead. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Um, Thank you. We've been talking today to Gerald Daw, author of The Sound of the Shuttle, Essays in Cultural Blowing and Protestantism in Northern Ireland, just published by Irish Academic Press in 2020. Jerry, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming and sharing your work. Not at all. Thank you for the questions. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>